Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. You are barking a happy tune with Anime World Order. Space Ghost, out! Welcome to, well, Season 2 of Anime World Order. As usual, I am Gerald Rathgold, and with me as usual... I'm not Clarissa stuff, yeah. I (laughs) thought I was for a second, but I got thrown off. But in fact, I'm Daryl (laughs) Surratt. And I am Clarissa. As in Season 1, every week we talk about anime. We review it, we talk about the news... And we make fun of people who don't like the stuff that we do. Although I don't believe in this whole podcast season thing. I don't know where it came from. I think <laughs> he's pulling that from Geek Nights, actually. I thought you were pulling it from Firefly Talk? The Signal? They split up their show into seasons? I don't know. Okay. That's, I don't get it. it really makes no difference with us. It's just another episode. If we were to ever drastically revamp the format of the show, then maybe we'd say, yeah, season, whatever. Yeah, it's pretty much going to be the same thing. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, as far as (laughs) things go here. Anyway, if you want to get in contact with us, email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com. Give us a call at 206-666-4AWO. That's 206-666-4296. Or send us an audio. That audio program is crap, but we use it anyway because there's nothing else. Yeah, audio, for those who've never heard of it, it's a site that lets you send MP3 messages. If you don't know how to record MP3s and attach them to emails and send them, it lets you do it through a Flash application. And it's also where we get our Flash players for the site, but the site's a piece of crap. Yeah. The only reason we use it is because... All the other sites who have Flash players and voicemail and stuff, they seem to be on Libsyn, and Libsyn costs money. Yep. And yeah. we're poor. We don't want to discourage you from sending audio in. We love to hear it. But if you know how to record MP3s on your computer and attach them to an email and send them to us, by all means, do that. That's preferable. Let's see, what are we going to do this week? I am sort of following in your footsteps, Gerald. Since a couple of weeks back, you reviewed Future Police Hiroshimon, which was a show that nobody could possibly find. And so I'm going to do the exact same thing. I'm going to review a pretty darn obscure movie from the late 70s called Ringing Bell. It's made by Sanrio, the people who make Hello Kitty. And it's the most terrifying and depressing children's movie ever made. Bambi's mom being shot is probably downright funny compared to this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be torturing you people with even more JoJo's Bizarre Adventure nonsense. Part two this time. And I'm going to be taking a look at a miniseries that was released in the mid-90s. More well known as Kishinkor, but released on DVD now as Alien Defender Geoarmor. So, That is what we have for this week. And I may as well mention some site news because due to Christmas and New Year's, we're probably going to be gone for two weeks at some point. But 
We've redone www.animeworldorder.com. We've got some post-specific tags now. If you want to just see the episodes where we talked about specific subject matter, we only have about 10 tags so far. So if you want to see more, just let us know. We also made our podcast RSS feed a text link since a lot of people weren't familiar with just that orange logo and didn't know where our feed link was. So we made it a text link. We also did the same for our iTunes subscription link because that stupid image wouldn't load half the time. So you can just click on that and subscribe to us via iTunes. Plus, we made some general site changes in the hopes that it'd maybe be a little more optimized for search engines. You'll notice we aren't showing as many posts on the front page anymore, for instance. But we do have links on the sidebar saying what the last five episode titles were. Plus, we have links to the archives where you can get every single one of our shows. Plus, if you look at our FeedBurner RSS feed, you can see what every single episode we've done is about. And you can use our review index or just the search blog search box in the corner. So hopefully people will still be able to find everything. Another change we made was that there's now Google AdSense ads at the bottom of the sidebar and at the very bottom of the page. Let us know if you find those too intrusive or if you think they look tacky. We'll see what we can do about it. I don't think they're going to do us any good, to be honest, since most people don't even visit the website. But whatever, we may as well try, right? As far as shameless promotion goes, Podcast Pickle is going to reset their favorites list to zero on December 29th. So everyone who's got us listed as a favorite will have to add us again. We are currently number two out of every single podcast on Podcast Pickle, and after this, we stand the chance to be number one. I had first thought the whole, hey guys, add us and all the other anime podcasts as favorites on Podcast Pickle was a goofy joke to pull, but apparently a lot of you are subscribed through that, so just giving you the heads up. Also, I added some more social bookmarking links to the site. If you want to add episodes to Delicious, Technorati, or Dig, you can do that. If there are other such sites that you'd like me to add links for, let me know, because I don't really use these things too much. Dig actually started supporting podcasts very recently, and since that's one of the biggest sites on the entire internet, it'd be cool if you guys would dig the Anime World Order podcast, as well as the individual episodes you enjoyed. Assuming you actively use Dig already, that is, because if you just show up to the site and vote, and then you don't come back to the site to vote on anything else, after a few weeks it'll stop counting your vote until you vote on something again. Basically, you have to actively use Dig for your votes to continue counting. But you don't have to keep voting for us like Podcast Pickle or Podcast Alley, so it's pretty good. If you don't know what Dig is... I recommend you listen to the Geek Nights episode about podcast directories because those guys really, really like Dig and their listeners also really like Dig because they're by far and away the number one anime podcast over there. But hey, we're already number two and I didn't really do anything other than put the link up. So I guess some of you guys know about this thing. At least enough of you knew that by the time I've heard about Dig podcasts Monday morning, the Anime World Order feed was already submitted. FeedBurner doesn't yet automatically support putting the links in, so I've manually put a Dig Anime World Order link up on the sidebar so you can at least dig the show itself. If you've never used Dig before, you do have to register to use the site. They have to make sure that one person doesn't just vote for the same thing a hundred times. There's really no possible way we could ever hope to be number one on Dig, though, because even if every single person who listens to the show went and clicked that link for us, we'd only be in the top 100 podcasts but i think we could at least get onto page one of the games and hobbies section of podcasts so help us out with that 
Dig is a really high traffic site, so the more of you who vote for us, the more people will see us, and it'll be good for our egos, which are, as everyone can tell from listening to this show, not nearly massive enough. Anyway, on with the actual show. And when I say actual show, I mean us reading emails for 30 or 40 minutes before we actually talk about things. I know some people think the show is way too long, and all I have to say to that is, well, we put the time codes up on the website for a reason. If you don't like us reading the emails, you can skip straight ahead to whichever part you want to hear us talk about. In answering emails this week, we thought that we'd go a little bit different path and just answer one voicemail. Or thereabouts. One very long voicemail from Walter Amos. We promised to play his Anime Expo recording one day. That's just 20 30 minutes, minutes long. Lo- 20 or 30 minutes long, yeah, something like that. This one is only about 10. We'll split it up into parts and go from there or something. Yeah. So, I guess without further ado, let's check out his first part. Right. Greetings, gentlemen and lady. This is Walter Amos sending a few comments on show number 41. There were three things I wanted to uh, make a few notes on. First off... In response to Gerald's remark in the beginning of the broadcast about never having encountered anybody who was a serious devotee of Odin, I want to let you know that in fact such people do exist. When I was first living in Austin and attended a uh, monthly anime group there called Fans of Anime of South Texas, there was a member who came up from San Antonio every month, and when we would have our end of the meeting discussion of what to show the following month, would, like clockwork, always suggest showing Odin. Now, this fellow was a name that will strike a certain amount of fear and loathing into the hearts of a lot of anime fans of my generation, if not by direct contact, but by reputation, but will probably be almost totally unknown to the vast majority of your younger listening audience, save possibly for, I think, a few comments that Dave Merrill might have mentioned when he was interviewed. I speak of none other than the storied Randall Stuckey, the former head of the Cartoon Fantasy Organization. Yes, Randall is about the only person I've ever met who was a serious devotee of Odin. You may make of that what you will. But I just have to say, in, in hindsight, that you know I hung out with Randall in San Antonio, and he's actually a pretty decent guy. Have either of you actually heard any stories about this dude? I've heard some stories about him, just overhearing people chatting in Desla Oktoberfest and situations like that, but I don't know much more than that. Well, what we'll do in the future, we said last week we'll try and get more interviews lined up, and we should probably just get Walter on the show at some point to talk. But for uh-huh. now, we'll deal with the voicemail. We'll also get Joe Vecchio, who was really instrumental in establishing fandom here in Florida, at least. He was also down with the whole CFO days. He'll almost assuredly have Randall Stuckey anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> it goes to show that there's always some guy. Fans everything. Yeah. It must mm-hmm. be that there's no taste in the world and that there's definitely yeah. people who are wrong and people who are right are us. and that's all people need to know (sighs) welcome to anime world order i don't know odin i don't even think it's a case of there was nothing else out there and so we loved odin because dude i remember first seeing odin Hmm. when i was like 12 or 13 and the only anime was maybe sailor moon had been airing on tv the dub of that and Mm -hmm. i was just I'll watch anything. Is it anime? Okay, I'll watch it. And even then, Odin was just garbage. Yeah, I watched MD Geist way back when that first came out, and there wasn't a whole Mm -hmm. lot then, and MD Geist was still crap back then. I mean, even with nothing else to compare it to, it was still crap. Although, as I (laughs) mentioned in the Odin review, 
there were a lot of reviews on the internet that were pretty positive towards Odin, which blows my mind. I guess it is just the fact that it's a very good looking movie. Must That's the be. only explanation I can give. It's a beautiful looking film. And as far as animation goes, all right, yeah, give them credit. But the yeah. writing is just trash. Anyway. It's no surprise, there are fans of everything. <laughs> every yeah. single last thing. Yep. Okay, and I guess without further ado, let's hear a bit more of Amos's email. With regard to your comments about Gankutsuo, having just plowed through almost the entire show myself this past weekend, and obviously enjoying it immensely, I was really glad to hear you talk about it. I think this deserves to be greatly popularized. But two brief things I want to note. First off, Daryl mentioned that the opening of the show has a narration in French. That is true, but only in the Japanese dub. If you listen to the English-language dub, the opening narration is, of course, in English. Uh, of course, it's a translation of what they were saying in French, but I don't know if this bespeaks anything as to why in Japan they're willing to leave the opening being a language they don't necessarily speak, but here we had to have it translated. It's not that I believe that there are more people in Japan per capita that speak French than here, but I wonder if maybe you might care to comment on if it speaks to something in the psychology of our production executives that in the original dub we were able to have a opening narration in French, which of course matches a show based on the work of Alexandre Dumas, whereas here we had to have everything be in English. I don't know what that means. I could swear I mentioned that it was only mm. the Japanese track that the opening narration was in French, mm. but they dubbed it into English. I, I don't remember. Hmm. I could swear mm. I said it. Maybe Did I edited, maybe edited it, out. it out. Possibly. Yeah. Maybe. There's yeah. so much stuff that we edited out of this. But America's I mean, pretty notorious for being pretty uncomfortable with foreign things, and especially foreign languages, despite the fact that it's not like there haven't been people speaking languages other than English here from before the founding of the nation, but anyway. Let me be devil's advocate here on this one. Just as an idea, the concept of dubbing something into English from a foreign language means you translate it over into the language people understand and maybe they just figured well it's still not english we'll just translate it over so that it's english anyway because right. that's the point of making the dub in the first place to take something that's not in english and make it into english i think it might have also been a bit of a situation of well they wanted to get this on television and mm. if they show this on television and the very first thing that a viewer sees is this narration in French. How much longer are they going to watch? Did they really want to get it on TV? Because this doesn't really seem like a show that would be accessible, widely accessible enough to run on television. I mentioned in the review Cartoon Network was considering it, but then they mm. decided against it because there wasn't enough action in the series. I strongly doubt that when they were making the dub, they were making it with a TV broadcast in mind just because of some of the translation choices they went with. I think that they make every dub with the hope of getting it on television now. I really doubt that. I think certain shows get the flag, like, this has potential to be on TV, and most shows don't. Right. I don't know. I, th I think that their dream mm. is to get it on television, because that's what sells more DVDs than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they would think it was a good thing if it would run on television. It's just, it seems like a, just a show that's not gonna be all that widely accessible or oh, is I it don't a doubt very, that. or is it a very high risk 
I don't doubt that it's an unusual choice, but I, I also don't doubt that, you know, some of the stuff that has been run on television is not stuff that I would expect to be run, like mm. uh, Paranoia Agent. I didn't think that would be run. Right. I don't know how much of that had to do with the company that actually released the show and how much of that had to do with the people at Adult Swim deciding on things to run. I get the feeling that Adult Swim's able to call the shots enough that they'll call you and say we're interested as opposed to you pitch it to them. Yeah, I think so. And in order for the decision in the dub process to have been made in aim of television airing, then it, that would indicate that it was the, uh, the company that released it that would be deciding whether it goes on television. And I'm sure that they were trying to make it as, you know, palatable as possible in the dub to whoever Adult Swim might be uh, making those. I think if they were really trying to make it as palatable as possible, they would have done a lot more than just not make the opening 20 seconds of each episode not be in French. There's a lot of things that they would cut out of the show entirely or talk around if Mm. the idea was to get it on TV. In the old days, what they do when they got things on TV was they'd go back and they'd do redubs. Like, they'd pick up a line and say, oh, you can't say this word on TV, just redub this one line. But that costs too much money. So in the classic cases, Bandai, when they were dubbing one of the Gundams, like G Gundam or something, they said, it was too much of a hassle to redub certain lines for Gundam Wing. We're just going to have our dub be one dub that can also be on TV and be on the DVD, and that's it, and that's that. And I don't think that Genion would not Mm. follow suit with that because they had to... Mm. I don't remember if they had to do it for Trigon or not. I'm racking my brain trying to think if there were changes in the Paranoia Agent dub, and it doesn't come to mind. I don't think there was any changes in Paranoia Agent. I don't think Paranoia Agent had anything that they would need to change. I don't think it really had much in the way of profanity or... Yeah, this is where Kyle Pope comes in. I don't know. Subject matter. Anyway, we got a lot of... Diverging feedback on the Gonkutsuo review. I should mm. probably read some of it at some point. But the feedback ranged from Gonkutsuo is the best show of the 21st century to Gonkutsuo is the biggest piece of trash I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I said would happen. Mm-hmm. So. It's, it's polarizing. It definitely is. And I guess uh, let's uh, get on with Walter Amos talking about Gonkutsuo then. But I also wanted to mention uh, something relating to Daryl's comment that the look of the show with its highly stylized artwork and background textures on everything is really sort of sui generis, uh, not really like anything else. Actually, there is one show I would compare it to art style-wise, and actually it's the first thing that I thought that it reminded me of when I first saw some clips of it back at Anime Expo this past summer in a music video. And that is a really fascinating animated film that I highly recommend your audience check out, something they might not have heard of, called The Thief and the Cobbler. This is a rather unusual film, probably about 20 or more years old now. It was a sort of labor of love by its creator, made over a number of years on sort of a shoestring budget, but clearly the amount of love that was poured into it as this sort of life work project shows, and used a lot of experimental animation techniques, including a lot of very sort of almost psychedelic backgrounds in a number of places, characters walking through things that look almost like something derived from an Escher painting. And when I first saw Gankutsuo, some of the backgrounds, the clothing textures, reminded me very much of parts of The Thief and the Cobbler. I've sent you a uh, link 
and the accompanying email with the Wikipedia uh, link for information about it. And I highly recommend to people who are interested they could check it out. Be sure also, if you do, to check the bottom of the Wikipedia link. There's some additional extra outside information there, including a site that has some uh, clips and screen grabs from the animation, which I highly recommend checking out. Clips and screen grabs? Fuck that, Walter. Listen, this is a movie <laughs> that people have gone and done re-edits for. Like, there's yeah. the re-cobbled edit of The Thief and the Cobbler, which you can download off of BitTorrent because I don't think there's a proper DVD of this movie. He was saying it's... It's a terrible one. Yeah, it's, it's crap. Well, I wouldn't well, recommend proper purchasing Proper is the, not the right word to use. Yeah, because the movie was still unfinished, essentially. It's like Walter said, this movie was made over 25 years. It has some record, doesn't it, as being like... It actually is the movie with the longest production cycle of any film, and it's very unusual. It was directed by a man named Richard Williams. Basically, he started this in the 1960s, and all the way up until the late 1980s or so, he was working on this bit by bit. Then it got taken away from him, and they reanimated these scenes from it, and... It's really weird, because I remember seeing the previews for this when it came out, and Vincent Price was in the movie. Vincent Price had died, so I was trying to figure out how he had done this movie when he had been dead for years. Apparently, he was doing the voice back in the 60s, as well as Kenneth Williams, who was a British comedian who died in 1988 or 89. So, it actually goes back a very long ways. Regarding that crappy DVD release, of course, I didn't even have to ask, but the Wikipedia entry does note that it was Miramax who put this thing out on home video, and then it was re-released by the Weinstein Company as a special edition, but it was the exact same edition, only in a really nice-looking case. Way to go, Weinsteins. You butcher every foreign language or otherwise. <laughs> this is an English release. So. Yeah, it's just any movie that's not theirs, I guess, that they just put out is garbage as far as their caring about it seems to be. At least they didn't put rappers in it. <laughs> I guess when they took the rights to the film away, they decided to do the equivalent of putting rappers in the movie. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, we'll post the links in the show notes. Everybody can go to Wikipedia and just type in The Thief and the Cobbler for themselves. But go and check this out. It's a very unusual movie, and it has an extremely unusual history. I can't actually think of an animated movie or any movie that's had a history like this. And what was the reason that they never released it? Because it seemed too similar to Aladdin? It's probably written in this article. I didn't bother reading yeah, it. Yeah, he was closing in on the end of production on it, and then Disney had, had been putting together Aladdin. And Aladdin was also a, an Arabian-themed movie, or I guess people will harp on me, it's Persian. But apparently they said, we need to get this movie out. You're not doing it fast enough. I find it hilarious whenever people you meet today identify themselves as Persian. It's not like Persia exists anymore. They're just too scared to say they're from Iraq. <laughs> How many do people go, it's like, oh, well, I'm from the Ottoman Empire? Hmm. I think people need to start doing that. Then everyone confuse everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I bet the porn industry would be first to do it. <laughs> When's the last time you ever saw Iraqi porn? <laughs> No, people would be too ashamed. Yeah, th there needs to be more Christian-themed porn, yeah, I think. I, think that's I really think that's market. the next step. Hmm. The untapped Christian-themed porn market. I don't know, they might be too scared of Falwell. And... They can take the scenes from the Bible and say, this is good Christian <laughs> values. That scene from Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, wait a second now. <laughs> Before we start delving into that, you gotta 
mention how the skeptics annotated Bible notes that they may not have been referring to raping and such. There's all sorts of weird interpretations. You don't really bring the wife and the kids when you're going to do a, a gangbang. <laughs> don't want to get in any scriptural debates here on the Anime World Order podcast. How the hell did we get on the subject? It's all Gerald's fault. It oh, is. God. It's always yeah. Gerald's fault. All right. Let's back let's to Walter Amos. <laughs> Third, with regards to Clarissa's review of Moide Poroporo. First off, I hate to be totally pedantic, but the production studio is actually pronounced Studio Ghibli, not Studio Ghibli, as most Americans pronounce it. In case you don't know, a Ghibli is actually the name of a certain kind of dry desert wind. Actually, I have to admit, the main reason I know this is because in the movie with Ray Fiennes, The English Patient, there's a scene in there where Ray Fiennes is telling his would-be girlfriend about this. They're stuck out in the desert and is explaining all about different kinds of different winds around the world, from the Scirocco to the Typhoon to the Ghibli. And this is what uh, Studio Ghibli based its name on. Actually, Studio Ghibli itself made some parody episodes called Ghibli's, where they were basically drawing self-caricatures in numerous situations based on this common American mispronunciation of their name. But, more importantly, on to Omoide Poroporo, another one of their films which, of course, I'm quite enamored of and was quite glad to hear you talking about because I hope more people will try to find it. One other element, though, which you didn't get into as much as far as the attraction of Omoide Poroporo, which was very big for me, was the music. I'm a very big fan of, of music in film. It was particularly striking that this film uses a lot of folk music, especially from Bulgaria. It was really unusual. Now, a lot of this music is on the actual movie soundtrack uh, CD, which you can buy probably through uh, CD Japan. You may be able to download online if you're so inclined. But I also wanted to point out that there are a few scenes in there which are just of such unbelievable, transcendent beauty that the first time I saw it, it literally brought tears to my eyes. And the music for a few of those scenes is not on the background CD, and I wanted to point out that if people had an interest in it, where they could find it. There are some examples of a, a music form called Bulgarian polyphony, and I've also included in that uh, little extra email I've sent you a link to the Amazon page where you can order the Bulgarian polyphony CD if you're so interested. I should point out that if you care to do so, the songs that are used from that CD in Omoide Poroporo are track number six, Dilmano del Bero, which is used when the heroine goes out to first work in the fields and sort of very energetic kind of folk song. And track number eight, which is the one that really brought tears to my eyes, I'm probably mispronouncing it, the original title is Malka Moma Tvorimete, which means a young girl sweeps the yard. This is the music used in the scene where they're out picking flowers in the field just before dawn and the sun comes up. They all watch the sun rise over the mountains and our heroine issues a small little prayer to nature or to the sun. And it's just an absolutely gorgeous, beautiful scene. And the music really just makes it. So I would highly recommend everybody, if you're interested in, in this film and finding it and really want to get the complete copy of the music, check out Bulgarian Polyphony by uh, Philip Kotev, the National Folk Ensemble. I was actually always operating under the impression that the name of the studio was derived from a type of plane, but apparently the plane's name came from the wind, so whatever. Aww. Yeah, we established in that episode, of course, that we can't pronounce anything correctly. <laughs> Except... They were saying that we say manga with an R, like we're saying it manga. Where the <laughs> yeah, fuck I are you getting that from, guy? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what was up with that. But wasn't that the same dude that said that manga is right? Yeah, you were saying, oh, I'm, I'm in Japan, and, and I'm fluent manga in Japanese. is the correct pronunciation. How about no? Maybe it's a regional accent that 
pronounces it Manga. Yeah, the, the regional accent so. that is, doesn't ever get spoken <laughs> in any form of media. I mean, I'm pretty sure that at least none of the dialects or accents that I can think of make much change to the way the basic vowel sounds are. And the thing about Japanese is that it's not like English where the vowel sounds are different depending on the word or you know what other sounds they're up against and other things. It's more like Spanish where the vowel sounds are always the same. I don't know very much about different dialects. That's one area that I'm very, very weak on. But I, I can't really think that, of having heard any that really alter the basic vowel sounds like that. When it comes to people saying that we mispronounce things, I'll try and pronounce things correctly whenever possible. But mm. whenever people start complaining that, oh, those guys on Anime World Order, they constantly say, anime, anime, anime. No, I don't. We mispronounce anime. I mispronounce anime. anime. Yeah. Anime <laughs> is correct, but they make it seem like we're right. always saying it anime to be snobbish or something yeah I no we're yeah. totally mispronouncing it and i will never ever say it anime because hardly really anybody too. in america says it anime yeah. everyone I mean, says I've, anime yeah. michael I mean, mike tool says mike tool's the first person i knew who'd say it that way and then i was like huh why is he saying that oh it's actually correct that right. it's just everybody in america does yeah. not say it that way or nobody in america says it that way that's what i mean yeah. right i've just been saying anime forever so like i've been saying you know OAV instead of OVA. Forever. That's more acceptable, though, mm. because they're almost interchangeable. Although you do tend to see OVA a little more in the Japanese ads. OVA became official when Tenshi Muyo came out. Because Tenshi mm. Muyo was released in Japan as Tenshi Muyo Ryo Oki OVA. And so that became kind of the semi official way I'm to say it. I'm not letting Tenshi Muyo dictate shit to how I say <laughs> things. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Which is why I still say OAV. Mm. OVA sounds too eggy. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding Over. what Walter was saying. <laughs> about yeah, the music. I apologize for not really talking about the music. The music is something that I really like, but I rarely include it in the segments, partly because most of the time, the segments that we record... Every time I record them, I usually have to edit, like, half the segment out. Now, a lot of that is pauses and extra you know, mistakes and extra, like, ums and ahs and stuff like that. So that's not too bad. But some of it is content. And so I'm always trying to make sure to cram everything into the amount of time and trying to make everything fit. Because I know music is not something that everybody focuses on. I often tend to forget about it. But... I do second what he says, that the music in Omoide Poroporo is very, very beautiful. And I thought it was really interesting that they included that Bulgarian folk music, because it's just not something I really expected to hear in a Japanese film like that. But it definitely is very beautiful. I really wonder how that musician who scored the music for it came across that. Just decided, oh, this sounds perfect, and hmm. find some obscure Bulgarian folk music. I don't know, I mean, there's... A lot of people who listen to various music from different countries and folk music and such, so it's possible that they just had an interest in folk music already, so they knew about it. I suppose that if your job is to score movies and all that, you probably know an enormous amount of more music than any average person would, so... Yeah, well, I mean, generally anybody who works in music 
because they're musicians, they're going to All right, it's you know, their job. pay more attention to it. Checking out the IMDb profile for the guy who did the composing for Omoide Poroporo. Yes, I was saying it, Omaide Poroporo. I fucked up, all right, in the last <laughs> episode. But if we wanted to really mispronounce it like Americans, we'd be saying it, Omohide Poroporo. But yeah. yeah, we're not that shithead level yet. <laughs> He did a lot of music for Ursei Yatsura, and that was one of the first anime where they really staked a lot of money and put a lot of effort into doing a lot of music for it. Mm-hmm. It's not that all over the place. It's definitely very 80s, but there's a lot of music for that. 20-some CDs worth mm-hmm. of Ursei Yatsura soundtracks. So I guess... In doing composing, like both of you guys were saying, you just have to listen to all sorts of music from all over the world. Right. right? And you guys don't really listen to music very much, so I, I think you guys probably underestimate the amount of music knowledge that a lot of people would have, especially maybe people who have a serious interest in music and work with it. Well, the human brain can only store so much information. For us to know (laughs) about anime requires that we decide that music is a worthless endeavor. Much like art is a worthless endeavor. Wait, wait, so... Anything that's not science. So then are you saying that I don't know about anime then? Yeah, 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 that's basically, yeah. Yeah, all right. All right, yeah, well, maybe you don't know about something else, then you're just pretending (laughs) to know about it. Like how I don't know about anything, and I'm just pretending to know about it. <laughs> In any case, we've got one more One more bit. To go Final bit of, uh, of Walter's rad email. Voicemail. Hmm. Yeah. Also, just one final thing unrelated to the show. Thanks for reading my previous email, and I hope you do get around at some point to my uh, incredibly long voicemail from before. But as I pointed out after uh, seeing you at AWA, I do want to send you the DVD of the AnimeCon 91 cosplay. But I have already put up a video on YouTube of Robert Fenelon as Leader Deslock in that show. And I'm also including the address for that in my accompanying email. So hopefully you can link to that and people can at least get a look at Leader Fenelock in one of his moments of glory. I may put up some additional uh, short clips from that video on YouTube, but I will get you the whole DVD uh, as soon as I can. So, again, thanks for another great show. Hope to hear more from you soon, and looking forward to your annual anniversary. Oh, a suggestion for your annual anniversary. Maybe you could just do a a total riff on the shows which you normally would not do, namely the shows that are most incredibly, insanely popular among the Teenage Cheeseheads of the month. Basically, do your big riff on Naruto, Dragon Ball, Inuyasha, and whatever the heck else is going on. Basically, just to get your snark out of the way. I think that would be really cool to listen to. It would be a real hoot. So, good on you. Keep it going. Thanks a lot. We were supposed to have Rob Fenelon as a guest, and we're going to do that at some point this year. I think what happened (laughs) was I wrote down his phone number and put it in my bag from AWA and never looked in the bag since. What happened is we fail at everything. Yeah, We'll we'll have Leader Fenelon on at some point. Make no mistake. We'll post that link to that video. I'm actually quite amazed that that video being, what, 15 years old is in such good condition. Yeah, that whole story they were giving us about, oh, VHS tapes are going to degrade and die on you after a few... That's bullshit. I got tapes from... I still have a pristine copy of Frankenstein. I mean... The <laughs> anime Frankenstein. Yes. It's still Dave Merrill, fine. Dave Merrill told me that he's never had a tape die on him, ever. 
Daryl, I, mean, I think a, you need to review Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, oh, we do. That needs to happen. Like Frankenstein, then Dracula right afterwards. Yes. <laughs> Fuck. Anyway. <laughs> with regards to his final request there, we sort of did that because we talked about Moonphase. Mm. <laughs> but this entire show is built and fueled by snark, so we can't get it out of our system. It would be bad. We'd have no more show left. Honestly, I don't really have a grudge against the shows themselves. Naruto, Inuyasha, One Piece Bleach, whatever is hot. The shows themselves are what they are. I don't especially object to them. There are even fans of the shows that are like, all right, yeah, you like that? Sure. Mm -hmm. No, we usually, like I said in the last episode, the thing that we're kind of harping on is the mentality, not just for people who watch whatever show, but just it can extend to anything of just the people who, by virtue of not having seen enough things, will proclaim something to be far greater than it actually is. And, yeah, they tend to collect around those sorts of shows. To the exclusion of other things. <sighs> which is kind of annoying. I like when we were getting those emails from people in other anime clubs. We were talking about people that just were saying, oh, the Daikon animation sucks because it's ripping off Fooly Cooly. You want to just kill somebody. That's kind of what we're more against. And it just seems to uh -huh. be that by virtue of the fact that those shows are more popular, they tend to attract that greater number of people who are uh -huh. overly overzealous. And that's kind of what we're making fun of. But the only thing we can do to stop it is put out this podcast. Not even Jesus could save them all, so whatever. <laughs> hmm. Thoughts, comments, am I... On the mark I don't know. I, I guess not. I agree with you. It's that I don't yeah. really have a problem with the shows. I have more of a problem with the people. Right. And not all the people, even. Yeah, I mean, I think those shows, I mean, they have flaws, but then again, everything has flaws. This is North Star has no flaws. <laughs> and I mean, Neither does Getter Robo. I mean, yeah, of course, Fist of the North Star is perfect. And in, in a way, those shows <laughs> kind of keep certain fans out of my hair. I like some of those shows, except for filler ridiculousness. I mean, that aside. As Mike Tool said, don't knock filler. If it weren't for filler, we would never know about how Goku and Piccolo got their driver's licenses. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really great filler episode. <laughs> There's some pretty amazing filler in Fist of the North Star, too. But on the opposite side, we've got things like that episode of Naruto where they had to make ramen and he uses the Rasengan or the whatever it was to stir ramen. <laughs> Way to go with presenting that as a credible... Yeah. Move to beat people up with. Mm. <sighs> but then again, it also gave us Guy Sensei and an Afro. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's I don't know. I think that if I put all of the filler that's ever been made next to each other, the majority of it is pretty bad. Right. Oh, I'm sure. You also have to consider the time issue. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's some perverse entertainment value to be found in watching something that's a filler bit, but if you know what should be happening or what's coming up next and you want to get to that part, uh -huh. that's when it really starts to kill you. Knowing yeah. that, hey, this might be okay and all, but I could be watching this instead. Right, yeah. That's really where filler does all the damage. Uh -huh. I think. Yeah. yeah. Could be seeing Kakashi's backstory or Gata getting kidnapped, but no, we're watching Naruto make ramen with the Rasengan. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know if that lame. actually happened exactly as I described it, but... It was something like that. Yeah. I don't know. It was uh, dumb. It was. I don't want to think There's about it. There's a lot it. of dumb filler. Yeah. Yeah. 
there is. Anyway, thanks very much for the voicemail, Walter. I will try and answer some more emails next week. I think right now we've got something like 115 unanswered <laughs> emails here, but we'll get through it. Yeah, huh. we always manage to. <laughs> We're like the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> get out of all these situations somehow. I guess since the Dukes of Hazard is as best a transition as we can ever find. Let's news! Working to restore power. We actually talked about this particular show just a couple of weeks ago. ADV Films just confirmed that they've got the license to the second season of Ah My Goddess. And we're talking about this because a couple of weeks ago, people were asking Media Blasters if they had had the second season. And they had basically very clearly said, no, we don't, and we don't even want the second season. So I'm kind of interested in figuring out if they didn't want the second season, I guess it wasn't very good financially for them. I wonder how much money ADV played for that second season. I said back when we mentioned this that the reason that they didn't really want the second season on My Goddess was, like they said in the interview, was because they make so much more money on Voltron, and Voltron was cheap for them to get, so it just mm. didn't make sense. They didn't need On My Goddess to have them pull through for a year if they're releasing Voltron, and way more people are buying that because that's bigger than anime. Mm-hmm. Maybe... Oh My Goddess is one of those things where it can make the standard amount of money that anime makes or something, because it's got fans. There's definitely people who buy it. I would imagine it would have to make a bit more, because I imagine that that it's must be a crazy particularly expensive, expensive right? show. Yeah, I mean, Oh My Goddess is a gigantic license in Japan, yeah. so I can't imagine that that's a cheap show. It must be a bigger gamble, then. Wasn't the movie a top-selling DVD in America, as far as um, anime goes? I wish we could find out about that, which... Mm. There might have been point. some sort of list, because I remember, you know, they had the top ten whatever lists, and they had mm-hmm. Nausicaa being number one for the previous year. I get the feeling that for the year that Oh My Goddess came out, it was on that list somewhere. I okay. think so. I seem to remember that movie doing very, very well. So there's definitely... Some sort of crowd for this thing, though. I don't know if uh. the amount of money they're asking per episode for season two of Oh My Goddess is going to translate to money being made. But mm-hmm. again, none of us can understand that. Just like we were talking about when we <laughs> talked about this, how they make money off of the idea of, oh yeah, we were the company that released so-and-so high-profile title and also other high-profile title, but we actually didn't make much money on these things and eventually you have to have something to make money on it might even be some very strange thing in that maybe this is just to get in with the company that is selling the license for oh my goddess it might not be as clear-cut it might be that ad this is a long-term strategy for adv and they're saying well you know we want to just get in good with this company so we'll license a very expensive show of theirs so that hopefully when something else is out they'll get first crack or something there might be a lot of reasons. It might not be as simple as just, we want to release this and make money off of this thing. Never is that simple, I guess. Uh, or it could be. Who knows? And <laughs> in that very same article was an interesting little tidbit that we've talked about this a number of times. Right, we were actually sort of talking about it just now, in a way. In fact, yeah. This was mm-hmm. actually an interview with Mike Bailiff, who is the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at ADV Films. One of the big issues that we have had especially on this podcast, is that we cannot get any official numbers on anime sales. 
they just do not release them. Not even official numbers, that's part of it, just so much as straight answers regarding much of anything. This is a wonderful example of just how around about some of these answers can be. I'm actually going to just read straight off this little segment with the question from Anime News Network and Mike Bailiff's answer, so just bear with me, folks. Anime News Network asks, A lot of anime fans out there are very curious about sales numbers for anime series, and the industry as a whole keeps those numbers pretty close to its chest. Meanwhile, mainstream film DVD charts are listed in countless magazines and websites. Aside from the obvious that fans don't really need to know, what's the reasoning behind keeping the unit sales, or really any kind of gross at all, so secret? And this is Mike Bailiff's answer. He says, I don't think we set out to keep our sales secret so much as we're mostly privately held companies. The major studios and some of our peers are publicly traded, and as a result, they have strict reporting requirements to adhere to. That's why you hear so much about the major studios' theatrical take, their DVD sales, etc. It's true that we want fans to concentrate on the quality of the shows we deliver. It's our job to help every show find its audience. That's it. I don't know how well that's accomplished by trumpeting our sales figures. If anything, I think the whole business aspect of entertainment can be a distraction from what's really important, the shows themselves. Yeah, that's pretty funny, because they sure seem to be trumpeting their sales figures back when Lady Death and Robotech came out. In fact, they even put out press releases. That's a very roundabout way of saying, no, we will never tell you our numbers. And we don't um, want to. And we don't want to. Here's the thing, and I'm just going to steal this thought straight from Scott over at Geek Nights. You can't get straight answers out of these people, and they always dodge the question, even when you ask them directly. And we fail to understand how this is supposed to generate confidence in a company's ability to do something. Like, if you go to a con, he mentioned this, they went to Otakon or something like that, and they said, Hey, ADV guy, what's the deal with your manga division? What's going mm -hmm. on with it? And all they got out of him was, oh, yeah, it's coming back. Don't worry about it. Yeah, we're going to do something with it. Uh -huh. Why can't they say, well, this is what we tried. This is what went wrong. This is what we're going to do to fix that. Mm -hmm. That would inspire much more confidence in us as fans knowing that, hey, are we going to get the remaining volumes of whatever? Yeah. Then, oh, just have faith in us or just wait. It's annoying because, I mean, it's not that we don't need to know. It's not that we don't care. It's that we care enough that we want to know. That's the reasoning behind it, is that we want to know what's the deal with these companies. Right. I, I do like to hear from people like John Cirabella, who runs Media Blasters. He is kind of well-known that he will be very straight up about if a show sells well or if it sells badly. And that's the other thing. In that interview, they said, aside from the obvious, fans don't need to know. I've never really... Is that really obvious, that. that we don't need to know? No. No, it's not kind of object to that bit. I guess it yeah. was probably on the part of the interviewer trying to just play up to his subject. I don't right. blame the interviewer. I imagine that he just wanted to get into No, it no, he just wanted to get the answer, but I'm sure yeah. it was very much, uh -huh. if I say this, then he knows that I'm yeah. on his side, and right. he can probably give me a straight-up answer, right. but it didn't quite work out. I feel kind of weird about saying, oh, well, we don't want to talk about it because if we talk about numbers and the business... It'll somehow make people start ignoring shows. Right. Are people seriously, do they have Come that on. faith in people that if they say this show didn't sell, then people will just say, oh, I better not buy that. Or if people say, oh, this is selling super amount, then they'll look at those numbers and say, wow, I'd better buy that too. Are we really uh. that dumb? I don't know. Maybe. I, maybe we are, but. The best I could ever see it coming out to 
is you find out that something is the number one movie in America or something like that, and you say, hmm, maybe I should go see that, even though I was having right. doubts. Obviously, a lot of, of people like it, so maybe it's good, yeah. Oh, I, I don't... When they talked about the fact that motion picture companies, large ones, publish their sales numbers at the box office and DVD sales, and yes, it's true that the fact that they're publicly traded does render some amount of obligation for that, but how many people decide... Even with all that information out there and being all over the place, do people decide whether they go see a movie really based on the ticket sales or do they look at reviews? I think more people look at reviews as opposed to ticket sales. Depending on the genre, of course. Well, yeah, but Horror I Horror th- movies I think never for- get good reviews, but they always make money. Or right. they tend to make money. But I guess right. if you put well, two of them together, I think a, more people will look at reviews than tickets. Right, right. Obviously. Horror is kind of a niche thing, so that's a little... I mean, that's kind of like sci-fi or something. It's sort but of what a, about a the genre. opposite? I'm not going to say converse because I might screw up the true meaning of that, but what about the flip side? Do people who wanted to see a movie look at box office performance and find out that it bombed in the theater and decide, oh, I'll wait for it or I'll see it later. I won't go see that anymore. I don't think that people do that. I think that so many things are still that people get to the theater and they're like, okay, what's playing? They don't look at box office numbers. Yeah, in my experience, it's more based on reviews than Yeah, if anything. Right, because there's a lot of movies that get critical acclaim, but people don't see for whatever reason. Like, I didn't see Flags of Our Fathers yet because it doesn't seem to be playing anywhere, but then I saw the reviews were mixed, and I was like, hmm... I'll wait for it. But if nobody goes to see Letters from Iwo Jima, that is not going to stop me from going to the movie theater to see that, because I want to see that. I would think that by now it would be common knowledge that just because something makes money doesn't mean it's good. Right. I would just hope that we would be beyond that point. But at the same time, anime is, we've said it before on this very show, anime is very fad-oriented, and Mm. maybe they think that by putting out these numbers, it'll expose that a fad is over and people will start moving on. I don't think it's the case. I think people move on before... The, the people moving on are what drive the low sales. It's not the other right. way around. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. It's just, so, I, I, I don't, don't like that answer that he gave. Yeah, no, neither do I. There's nothing yeah, we can do about it. It's, and it also kind of insinuates that the people who are interested in the numbers somehow don't care about the shows, and that's bullshit. You yeah. know, obviously the shows are the most important thing, and the quality of the releases are the most important thing, but it would just be kind of interesting to know a little bit about how the industry is doing. Like, I would like to know, really, how well they're doing. I know that they talk about doing well, but I would actually like to know, is the anime industry in trouble? I think it might have an impact if some people knew, hey, the anime industry isn't making as much money as we thought it was, and it's in some trouble. I'd better be the one to buy this, because yeah, no one else will. Yeah, maybe some people that are saying, oh, I don't need to buy that, they're making tons of money on that. If they mm-hmm. then saw when nobody's buying it, maybe they would say, oh, well, I want more of this to come out, so maybe I should buy the DVD. Or maybe then it will work against them, and they're making gobs of money. And then there's True. people True. are saying, well, you know, then I don't have to buy anything, they're making so much money. Something tells me that's not the case. Working with what Clarissa was saying, I think that it could potentially even help sales if they put out sales numbers. Because, I mean, then you might be able to say, well, you know, there's this really great show that sold so few copies that really people should go out there and pick this up. It's a show that needs the support. It's just so people don't think we're just out to demonize all anime companies. It's just a weird dichotomy we're noticing. Because anime companies are incredibly open with fans 
because mm-hmm. you won't see movie theater executives yeah. going out to sci-fi conventions to talk right. about movies that they're going to release unless it's something like SDCC which isn't really for the fans it's really no. just advertising mm-hmm. yeah. you don't see that level of interaction between high level movie theater executives and fans the way you do mm-hmm. with anime anime companies in that sense are really open and they're yeah, really they upfront but this is the one area that they're really really guarding under lock and key and it just doesn't mesh i don't get it I think that it has the potential to reflect badly because I think maybe to some people, like sometimes I think, oh, if they don't want to talk about their numbers, or they don't want to talk about licensing practices and how their business works, maybe they have something to hide. Maybe things aren't going so well or maybe things are working kind of wonky and they don't want people to know. It seems a little suspicious, especially, like you said, because it contrasts so much with how relatively open they are about a lot of other things. Yeah, I mean, how many convention, how many, like, companies that release films can you sit down with the people who right. put the stuff out and chat with them? I mean, well, that's practically I mean, that's, zero. Yeah. That's something that always comes with a size issue. Anytime anything gets more popular or bigger, there's less potential for that kind of interaction with the fans. Okay, then how many movie theaters that are co-producing a $150 million Neon Genesis Evangelion movie? (laughs) (laughs) Which will never be made, by the way, but still. (laughs) Can you do that with? Maybe they just want to have their cake and eat it too. They want Mm. people to think that anime is doing really well. They don't want to expose that, oh, this disc of something only sold 5,000 copies in the entire nation, but at the mm-hmm. same time, they want people to think that anime is kind of this fringe sort of underground thing. Because there's mm. definitely people drawn to the idea that, oh, anime is this subculture underground yeah. thing that people don't know about, which, by the way, is bullshit. Anime is pretty mainstream. Yeah, yeah by now, it's not edgy anymore. <laughs> and it's been that way for some time. But at the same time, they want people to be thinking that, oh, yeah, anime companies are right up there with those big-time movie studios. They're sticking right. it to them because, hey, all those guys, their sales are down and anime sales are doing whatever. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. I don't yeah. know why they're doing it. I just know that they do and they continually do it. So there must be something really obvious that we're not getting or maybe we do get it and is that obvious and we just like, that's the reason tough. If Diamond Friggin' Comics can go out and say that their American comic books are number one because it sold 120,000 copies for the the week of whatever, then anime is certainly doing better than that. Well, not in terms of copies sold, but as far as money made, I suppose. So I don't see how it would hurt them if there's still going to be people dedicated to it. There must be just something that we're missing. Some obvious reason. I don't know. Oh, well. Yeah, oh, well. Other news. Other news. Switching gears very much from something controversial to something not so controversial. We talked about Ghetto Senki some weeks ago and talked about how it was going to have problems being released in America because of the Sci-Fi Channel's miniseries, Tales of Earthsea. I might be getting that name wrong, by the way. But anyway, the, because that this show had been produced, potentially the Sci-Fi Channel could block the release of the Ghetto Senki mm. movie in America. However, that's not the case in the UK. Apparently, the UK will be getting a subtitled Region 2 DVD summer of next year. So it's another Only Yesterday. I wonder about this issue with Sci-Fi Channel. Maybe it is true that they really can't release that here, but Sci-Fi Channel 
as far as I remember, supposedly bought the exclusive rights to the new Doctor Who television series. And guess what? And guess what? BBC America is running Doctor Who. So, I don't know. If Sci-Fi Channel apparently couldn't keep exclusive stuff for Doctor Who... Maybe there's some hope for what I think is interesting about this announcement is the fact that they've announced the UK release before the Japanese one. I checked CD Japan and I could not find Ghetto Senki. If you guys Mm. can check it now, maybe it's changed since then. But I think it's getting a UK release before it's even coming out in Japan, or at least the announcement has been made, which strikes Mm. me as kind of bizarre. But it's another one where. It's a Ghibli movie that, for whatever reason, we haven't gotten here yet. And so far, only yesterday is the main example of that. But I guess we're adding one more to that list. And the biggest Mm. joke of all is that this is supposedly not that good a movie. (laughs) So we're discussing a whole lot about a movie that I haven't heard any reviewer give a very positive review about. I've heard one or two positive reviews, but for the most part, everyone's been kind of saying, yeah, not that great. Yeah, might just be, you gotta understand it's the dude's first movie he ever did and he's got just the wrong last name to be making your first movie ever (laughs) yeah for the wrong studio i do feel sorry for him i mean imagine that pressure yeah it's gotta suck if he were starting up like pretty much every other person in anime started i actually don't know if he started as anything else in the in anime like was he like an animator or no he was like the curator for the museum or something right that's it just the curator so he goes from curator for his dad's museum to Mm. directing a big budget animated movie that's a hell of a step yeah just imagine that you're one of the grunt animators there who's been wanting to work your way up and then this guy gets like the cream of the crop role out of nowhere it's like we were saying studio (laughs) ghibli they've got problems with once miyazaki and takahata die who is going to carry the torch yeah Mm -hmm. and they got to find someone and who's going to come from out of nowhere that they could possibly do it well if he's got the same last name. Maybe some of the talent rubbed off, and Mm. so they said, oh, well, we better try it and see what happens. Yeah, it's kind of rough when your first movie isn't, you know, a life-changing masterpiece. At the same time, it's (laughs) like you were saying in uh, either a conversation with me or it was possibly in this episode, Ghibli is not really set up to allow for new talent to really rise Mm. up. I'm not sure how... Even the Cat Returns guy or the now dead Whispers of the Heart guy. Actually, he was around for a long time. But the new talent is supposed to rise up because everything is to Miyazaki's specifications. You're not really allowed to... Experiment. Well, yeah. it's, it's like if they work under... Well, I should actually say they were around before Pixar. But it works under the idea of putting all of your eggs in one basket. And when you put all your eggs in one basket like that, mm-hmm. you better go for the guaranteed bet. Uh, just in case anyone doesn't understand what I mean, is that Ghibli puts everything that they've got into one good movie. And if that movie fails, then they're hurting pretty bad. So My yeah. Neighbors, the Yamadas, didn't do so well, mm-hmm. and that Takahata and Miyazaki had some words. That was funny, because I thought that Miyazaki... Wasn't that around the time when Miyazaki said, I'm retiring? That's the end? Oh, then, that time? You mean like time, how he's been saying it for 15 years? But I mean, I thought that that was especially funny, mm. because... The Miyamatas came out and didn't make money, and then instantly he's back working at it. Yeah. It's probably, probably because it's like, well, if you don't come back and make something, we're done. <laughs> Miyazaki's about like Kojima with Metal Gear Solid. I'm not directing the series anymore. I mean it. That's it. No more Metal Gear Solid. Oh, uh, oh wait, no, guys, I- I'm directing this one after all. 
I think it's going to be very funny when Miyazaki does die when they stick a metal spike up his spine and then just and have just him prop kind of wander around. <laughs> Mummify him like Vladimir Lenin. And just, or just do like have Walt him... Disney and like cryogenically freeze him. <laughs> or maybe they'll try and clone him. It is Japan. They're pretty advanced. So maybe, maybe. Their, their first experiment with full human cloning will be to try and clone Miyazaki so that he can keep making Ghibli movies. But he'll have to take pills because he's got shortened telomeres and he's got to <laughs> prevent himself from aging super rapidly. But it drives him insane. <laughs> but he's the best yes. robot pilot on the block. <laughs> Anyway, and the last bit of news, which is interesting as it's kind of a commentary on uh, modern voice actors, this came from Masako Nozoa. Masako Nozoa, for those of you who don't know, is one of the most amazing people still working in the anime voice acting industry. She started her work in the original Astro Boy. I don't believe she was Astro Boy, but she started there in the 1960s, and she played Goku in uh, Dragon Ball and then Dragon Ball Z, and then Dragon Ball GT, and then she was Gohan, and then she was Goten as well. And she was Doraemon for a number of years. And God, she, she can play video games like it's nobody's business. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she can. And anyway, she was commenting on modern Japanese actors. I hate doing this, but I'm just going to read this short little piece to you. And it says, 70-year-old Japanese voice actress veteran Masako Nozawa recently gave an interview to the Yomori Shinbun and that she's known for a wide range of roles, Kitaro in Gegege no Kitaro and Tetsuro in Galaxy Express 3.9 and mm-hmm. other, two other big roles. Yeah. She says that young people today are aiming at animation form from the beginning, unlike me, who originally wanted to do dramatic performances on the stage. I think there seems to be a lack of depth expressed by up-and-coming Siu. Could it stem from either a lack of interest in reading the script or not studying it beforehand? It's an interesting commentary because basically now there's a lot of this generation of voice actors are just designed to do anime only mm-hmm. and aren't getting like the full rounded technique yeah. of I think we notice that even here in America because if you think about it, the classic example is Star Blazers. To dub that show, they got a lot of off-Broadway sort of people, Mm -hmm. and that's still a pretty well-acted dub to this day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even for a lot of the older shows, I'm not saying all of them, because everyone remembers the Speed Racer acting as being (laughs) notoriously silly, but Battle of the Planets, as goofy as that is, Casey Kasem's Mm -hmm. had years, decades of radio experience, right? and he's done voice work for so Mm -hmm. many things over the years, too. And I'm not saying that it's good or bad or better or worse, but I'm just saying that he's got a wider range of experience that he's able to Mm -hmm. do things that seem like it'd work out a little better. And when you do train for just anime, like a lot of the people Mm -hmm. you see at conventions like the, how do I become a voice actor? It's my dream to be a dub actor for anime. The advice that people always give them is, well, can you act? Can you act? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Where did you learn to act? Where would you get experience doing so? No, I don't want to hear your voices. Can you act? Right. That's it's right, one of those right. kinds yeah. of things. I mean, if you look back at the old Streamline dub, all of those people had experience in traditional acting. Like, right. Um, Even though Wendy we made Lee fun and, of them for mumbling yeah. a lot, I still like a lot of the <laughs> yeah. sound crew for yeah. those Streamline dubs, which I mm-hmm. still contend were mm-hmm. pretty well acted aside from the mumbling. Right. The main bad Some of the thing writing. about them was the script that they had to read. Right. Yeah, I think in general, I mean, in any area, the more kind of stuff you have experience in doing... 
And the more background you have for any kind of new thing, especially, the more background you have in the previous things that it's based off of, I think the stronger it's going to be. I've noticed a similar problem, I think, in, and I, I think somebody else was talking about this recently. I don't know if it was one of you guys or if it was uh, somebody that wrote into us about people writing for manga or anime and that they don't have any kind of background in literature. And, right, I think you know, right. we were talking about that because we were talking about how the original generation mm-hmm. of people who started making yeah. anime had gotten their start from at least right. wanting to or trying to do film. Yeah. And they drew their influences from that, mm-hmm. whereas the next generation yeah. were raised entirely on just watching anime. And so they right. made just mm-hmm. anime based yeah. on that. And so it's sort of this yeah. incestuous each subsequent exactly. generation ends up having flipper toes. Yeah, and yeah. video games are the same thing. I think a lot of the problems in writing with video games where we see a lot of this repetitiveness and a lot of the shallow writing is that the people writing it are maybe not necessarily people who have a background in literature and other forms of writing. Because they any study of that video game writing or something. Any of that maybe, that's based I don't off know. of other stuff. Of course, I would argue that the writing in video games now is certainly better than it was at the beginning Oh, no, no, it definitely is. But yeah, I mean, they do get I'm real not, writers now. Yeah, they're getting some more people who are writers with writing experience writing other things. And you're noticing the difference. To then you read get scripts like The Dig. Yeah, by Orson Scott Card. <laughs> the most unbelievably yeah. tedious Well, that's I've because read, Orson but... Scott Card is insane. Yeah, and yeah, that's true. Yeah, so. If you follow any kind of science fiction at all, you know by now that Card is just crazy. The guy, oh God, that poor the guy script. was always crazy. He's but got like, some radical went, political viewpoints too. He went crazier recently because mm-hmm. yeah, it's like being a NASCAR driver and only learning how to drive NASCAR cars and never learning how to drive a regular <laughs> car or something. It's yeah. right turn. What the hell's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never yeah. have to do that in my career, so I won't learn it. Talladega yeah. Nights is a good movie because so much of the movie is spent making fun of people who watch NASCAR. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh man, but this is our rather long segment of news. But I guess mm-hmm. that's the nature of the beast. Yeah, one of those deals where it takes us forever to actually start talking about the anime we're supposed to talk about on this show. Yeah. <laughs> At least we're sort of on the subject of anime in a sense, but yeah. I don't know. We've never bothered to ask if people actually think that's obnoxious or not. The fact that in the beginning of the show we say we're going to talk about this, and then like an hour later we actually get around to that. <laughs> but I guess people would be telling us, but then again... I don't know, I think people would just be not listening to the show. <laughs> Probably. That's true. Is that what the if hell is like this it? crap? Yeah. So if you don't like what we do, Delete. tell us about it. Yeah. Anyway, we I promise guess... we actually will listen. Yeah, of all those 115 and change emails that we've got, we have read all of them. We just right. have yeah. to actually respond to them. Yeah, just because we haven't read it on the show doesn't mean we haven't read it. We have to go through our, with whether or not we want to respond to this personally or if it's mm-hmm. worthwhile us reading it and us all responding. Right. So, okay, well, I guess with that, we should we probably should actually get to... start talking about anime. Right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, let's do that. Cheer and call. Everybody in America who is listening to this knows who Sanrio is. They're the company that makes Hello Kitty 
and all kinds of really expensive character related merchandise that is sold all over the place and girls love this stuff and apparently it has the power to drive otherwise rational people completely insane absolutely hey, come on nuts. Who, who does not want a hello kitty waffle iron i would the people kill who someone. want the hello kitty shoulder massager i want <laughs> <laughs> sanrio is a juggernaut of a company but while they're best known for hello kitty they have tons and tons of other characters as well. We're going to talk about Unico someday, just not today. We're going to start a little bit earlier, because what people may not know is that even though Sanrio releases all sorts of merchandise, they also make anime. They made movies at first, and then there was, like we said, little short TV shows and stuff like that. Apparently, they're going to start doing movies again in 2007. But what I'm going to talk about now is, I think it's either their first, probably their second movie that they ever made. It's from 1978. Man, that's not quite Star Wars time, but <laughs> thereabouts. Ringing Bell is the name of this. This was brought out in America in 1983. The original title of it is Chirin no Suzu, which is Chirin's Bell or Bell of Chirin or something like that. This was a 45-minute-long movie. OEVs didn't exist back then. They released this as a double feature with another kind of short movie. I think it was The Mouse and His Child or something like that. I've never seen it myself. It was very common back then to do that for the summer releases. Yeah. To do double features to get kids out of the way. Of course, they were usually in things like My Neighbor Totoro with Grave of the Fireflies. Of course, that's 10 <laughs> years or some change after this. In any case, Ringing Bell... It's one of these things where I'm going to have to spoil this thing. For one, the statute of limitations for spoilers is long expired on this. And for another, this is a really hard movie to find. I'm probably going to have to bit-torrent it myself, much like we did with Hiroshiman back in show number 40. Ringing Bell is basically a fairy tale. It's not an anime adaptation of any existing fairy tale, as far as I know, but it's... A short little sort of moral tale where just basically telling you what it's about is effectively every single thing that happens in it. Essentially, Ringing Bell is about this little lamb named Chirin. The reason it's called Ringing Bell is because Chirin has a bell that he wears around his neck. Whenever Chirin gets lost and his mom needs to find him, she can follow the sound of the bell and that'll lead her straight to him. The first part of this movie is just Chirin being a little baby lamb frolicking in the field with his mom and playing with the farm animals and that sort of thing. <laughs> That's what lambs do, I guess. They <laughs> live happy, idyllic farm lifestyles where they chase after gophers and... This sounds like your ideal movie, Daryl. Well, that's just what's going on in the movie. It's not really boring or anything. It's just that's how it starts. Then suddenly one day something bad happens, as what typically happens in fairy tales. Chirin is told that, oh, never go beyond the farmer's fence because there's a big, bad, evil wolf that lives on this mountain way far away off in the distance, and I don't ever want you to meet him. So, of course, naturally, one day the wolf attacks the flock of sheep at night and kills his mom. Belle is just torn up about this. He's pissed off that this wolf killed his mom and he couldn't do anything about it. So, he runs away from the flock to go and kill the wolf himself. But he's a little baby lamb. And it's a cute little Sanrio sort of character baby lamb trying to kill this wolf that just looks really 
totally menacing. And of course you can't do it. Little baby lambs have no means of killing anything. This infuriates Belle because it's not fair that lambs have to be weak in the world. And I want to be a wolf instead. I don't just want to sit there and do nothing and to be killed one day out of nowhere. I want to be a wolf. Teach me how to be a wolf. And the wolf is, of course, initially thinks this is the stupidest thing in the world. But eventually the wolf subsides and starts training Belle in the ways of evil. Lesson one, life is pain and all these really stark, harsh truths that you'd expect to see out of Wonder Chosen, but no, this is a real children's movie. And Belle just gets subject to all this torture and suffering and getting beat up. And eventually, as a result of his training, he ends up just turning into this nightmarish looking ram and the wolf and the ram just start going around <laughs> killing all over the countryside ravaging livestock jeez and this was a good kids movie and of course he's got the bell on him the whole time but the bell ends up being this menacing thing all of a sudden that you hear the bell and you're gonna get you know raped (laughs) by a ram raped in the sense of like being shot by a railgun in unreal tournament (laughs) or i'm sorry quake 2 not raped in the sense of kazuo koike then of course the film gets to the point where eventually they're getting set to do a raid on the very same flock of sheep that bell came from originally the wolf is like you think you can do this bell and bell's like i know i can do it years have passed and he's not even remotely similar looking anymore but in the end he can't do it eventually he finds himself in a situation where he would have done the exact same thing he would have killed a little baby lamb's mom and he just couldn't do it and so the wolf is like, oh, what the hell is this? I took you in, I raised you, you were like my son to me, and you thought of me as your real father because I taught you the ways of the world, and now you're doing this? And so a fight breaks out, and Bell ends up killing the wolf that killed his mom, but instead of the flock being grateful for it, they're terrified of him. They won't take him back or anything, and as much as he tries to convince them that he used to be one of them, they aren't buying it. And so he's left alone because his mom is gone and his surrogate dad is gone. And he just kind of wanders off into the mountains and is never heard from again. The end. Holy crap. That's the lesson. He tries to do things like, oh, he sees a snake attacking a bird and he doesn't want that to happen. So he attacks the snake, but the bird ends up dying anyway. And all the bird's eggs fall out of the nest and smash up. It's really, really grim. And... It's made by the people who made Hello Kitty. (laughs) And it's really strange in that sense. But what I really have to hand this movie is that it's only 45 minutes long, but it does not feel like something really short. I have seen my fair share of one-shot OAVs that were 45 minutes long, and you're left there going, wait, what the hell, that's the end? Or that went by really quick and didn't answer anything? This definitely, the pacing of it is really exceptional i don't know how they did it but it's just you're watching it and it doesn't seem like things are dragging and it doesn't seem that things are moving super fast i think (sighs) that's got to be the mark of some talented direction as far as the person who directed it that person later went on to direct such exceptional things as initial d oh fine he also directed a lot of other classic anime like princess knight and sea prince and the fire child the director of Princess Knight directed Initial D? Ha ha ha. Oh, God. There are two directors for Initial D, so maybe... <laughs> I don't know. But he also did Ping Pong Club? Oh, 
I don't know what to say about that, but I was talking about the Sanrio element, and I was also talking about how it's really scary. There's kind of two disparate art styles in this film. There's the cutesy style, and then there's this freakish nightmarish style. And the thing is, is that they don't look like they're from two different shows. It really blends together well. It doesn't seem like, oh, this is a jarring, out-of-place thing. Just gradually, as this movie goes on, the designs of everything sort of change over. The wolf is always drawn as looking very sharp angles and menacing, whereas the sheep are, of course, you know, warm and cuddly and all that. But one thing I thought was terrifying about this movie, other than the actual nature of it, Belle's face. When he's a little baby lamb, he has the face of a human being. Oh my god, what? <laughs> When Belle sees his mom, it's, it's terrifying. <laughs> when Belle sees his mom die and he's got like this look of grief on his face, I swear to God, it looks like Elmer Fudd. <laughs> I, it's it's just I, I don't know if maybe this movie made furries out of people or what. I don't think it did. I want to say no, but <laughs> this movie is just nuts, man. But it's it's good though. I've explained the entire movie, but it's because not a whole lot happens. <laughs> what do you say to this? It's just, it's mind-boggling that this movie, one, got made, that it was brought out in America, and that it was left completely intact. How does that happen? I don't know. The power of Sanrio? For Sanrio. And you remember how, <laughs> Gerald, you remember yeah. back when we reviewed in show number one, Animal Treasure Island? Right. And then they had the songs that were advancing the narrative in the songs with the lyric yeah they do that in this as well there's things like And then eventually it's like, we will travel, wolf and ram, and we'll ravage all the land. Getting strong now, won't be long now, till I'm the strongest one of all. I am Turin, I am Turin, I am Turin. <laughs> what? <laughs> How does this happen? This is terrifying. This movie was never released on DVD here, and I've never seen the subtitled version. I did check YouTube. It is entirely posted to YouTube, or at least several clips of it are available on YouTube, so I might not need to put this on BitTorrent necessarily. I'll do some things with the show notes. I'll see how much of it is there. I know friends of mine who have seen this through fan sites. They put up YouTube is set up so you can't have it longer than 10 minutes each, but the clips I were looking at were almost scene breaks. Like, this is a 14-second clip from Ringing Bell, all uploaded by the same person. This is really something that I want people to go out and watch. <laughs> is this something that you would actually recommend the parents show to their kids nowadays? That is hard for me to say. The lesson is a very adult sort of lesson, it's almost like the recent season of The Wire. You start off with these sort of ordinary kids and some bullshit happens to them and then the world just starts going to hell. 
A lot of people, um, when I looked on IMDb, because there is an IMDb entry for this, almost every single entry were, I saw this as a kid when it was on VHS. I had no idea what I was in for. (laughs) (laughs) And just the fact that the main character, Cheering, he's this little cute lamb, and then he turns into this freakish ram going around just impaling dudes. (laughs) Have you ever seen... really jarring. Have you ever seen... An animated movie called Watership Down. That's what I was just about to bring up. <laughs> oh my because god, you if were. People because people saw that's Watership the same Down thing. and then saw this, I don't know how they'd been able to deal with it, but it's, I, I saw I, Watership it's interesting Down. that you brought up Watership Down because yeah. I talked to a friend of ours who had seen this as well, but he didn't know he'd seen it. But once I started talking about it, he's like, oh man, I saw this. And he said, man, if I'd seen this as a kid, I don't know what I have done. Between this and Watership Down, mm-hmm. would have just wrecked me as a child. For those of you out there who don't know, Watership Down is probably the worst movie you can show a little kid. Because <laughs> it's about all these cute little bunnies who then eventually have to go around killing each other, like scratching each other to death. And this is like, this entire movie is these cute little bunnies killing each other brutally. This is the kind of the vibe I'm getting when you're while you're talking about this movie. I know. You hear about all these people who are like, it was this big scarring emotional milestone to see Bambi's mom get shot. I want to know what happens for the people who watch this movie. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> they shot themselves and they're not alive anymore? This is like 45 minutes of Bambi's mom getting shot. <laughs> I think I need to own this movie. I you do. Know. It's just, I don't have a physical copy. I found it off oh, of BitTorrent, and I was like, oh, holy shit, someone actually did a VHS capture mm. of it? It was 700 mm. megs for 45 mm. minutes, but whatever. It's something that has to be preserved, because this yeah. is a dub <laughs> that time forgot. Down too. I have the book for Watership Down, but I don't have the movie. I need to watch Watership Down again as an adult. I wonder if I watched it when I was very young, and maybe it was Let me tell you something. I've been talking a lot about how fucked up this movie is, and the fact that Sanrio made it. But the fact that they actually made a cartoon for kids with subject matter and themes about life and death and the choices that you make in life. And it doesn't tone it down. And doesn't talk down to you. It, It still holds up. Like, if you were to watch this as a kid, as a lot of people did, and then watch it as adults, this thing is is pretty adult animation in my estimate even though it's mm. definitely a very kiddie movie from a lot of the things in it i think mm. that that's testament to anime's strengths right is it's penchant for being able to tell stories like this yes yeah. it's extremely grim and the lesson is that you don't really get a happy ending if you make certain decisions Mm-hmm. that have negative consequences. It seems very much like a throwback to sort of the classic fairy tales. Like, not the nice, clean, Disney-fied versions where oh, everyone God. was happily ever after. Right. Real the one... fairy tale. Well, the thing is, is that one thing about this that really felt anime-ish to me is the whole wolf being reluctant to initially start training Chirin. It was totally <laughs> done in this shonen fighting anime kind of sense because oh he's determined and he really wants to stick to his dreams and follow his goal and see through it no matter what hardships he may endure no matter how many bad things he's still got his goal in mind he keeps trying (laughs) for a normal kid story that seems to be the lesson you'd get go don't give up in the face of adversity but in this case his goal is a bad goal why do you want to become a wolf i couldn't stand it They all just sat there in the pasture, too scared to go past the fence, too scared to do anything. 
I don't want to be killed. I want to be strong. <laughs> Cry and let the anger It's the only way that you're going to grow fangs. What's that? Grow fangs? Yes. Life deals out few things besides pain, but from that pain you'll grow sharp, strong fangs, though they may not be the kind you can see. Then I can do it! Wow! That's something that's interesting to me. He had somewhat noble intentions, hmm. and this is a pretty intense film, and I kind of think that kids should see movies like this, especially now yeah. when I look at yeah. children's entertainment. And how it's too sheltered and right. too like not a, a, teaching any real lessons. I mean, yeah. Barney is that really oh, teaching God. people things? I, and then hey, Barney gets I, even worse between I, Teletubbies and then God forbid right. fucking bananas and pajamas and I think so too. I think there's been the tendency to really talk down to kids and to kind of assume that kids are stupid. Mm-hmm. And that they can't handle complex stuff or stuff that's not really happy. I don't know if that's really good. I don't don't think it is. There's a really good book on the subject called The Uses of Enchantment by a guy who's a child psychologist, actually, for anybody who's interested in that debate. I think this is a movie that maybe kids should watch, but it's a movie kids should watch with their parents. I don't think this would be a movie that people would put on like, oh, here, put on Ice Age and then just walk away so I can get some peace of mind in my life while the kids are watching TV. Yeah, it seems like that the kids need this explained to them. Why it was a bad decision. Yeah. And that sort of thing. Maybe that was what was wrong with me, was that I watched Watership Down alone. I came out a stronger person for having watched that, but I still remember watching that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like how Patrick was saying, people like Kojiro Abe, they went from Pokemon straight to Battle Royale. Mm. And that's kind of this current generation of fandom in a nutshell. People, even. And I think... It's because a lot of the kids' entertainment is just so incredibly sheltered and so sanitized in its depictions of violence and themes of life and death that Mm -hmm. you're for the worse off for it. There is a merit to preserving the innocence of kids. You don't want to scar people for life. But at the same time, you don't want to totally shelter people such that once they come out in society, they're just screwed up dudes. If your kid can handle Bambi they could probably handle this. Mm. But it's a strange movie that you're not going to find anywhere, so it's not like this is a movie that people are it's going to show each other. It's probably not an issue. <laughs> it's not an issue because it's too hard to find. It's been out of print for decades. It was only released on VHS. And mm. we were talking about this before on Anime World Order. We were talking about, should we review things that are really obscure that aren't easy to find? Mm-hmm. And people were saying, yeah, but at the same time, we don't want to just do a show where we're just waving our dicks around about look right. at this bizarre thing that yeah. no you can't see this and yeah you'll never watch you'll it you'll never uh-huh. get this you'll never get this then we escape from our cage and we get this <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean <laughs> i guess that's all i have to say about this movie it's a pretty interesting curiosity at the very least mm-hmm. it's something that is somewhat of an oddity and there aren't reviews of this online there isn't really much discussion of it there needs to be more reviews of ringing bell so if you hear this review and you want to check it out i'm going to check youtube and it's not there i will put it up for download and maybe you can check it out and maybe you can write your own review and maybe you can spread the word about it because more people need to at least know that this existed yeah it seems like the moral 
I mean, you didn't really state the moral very, like, this is what the moral is. Because the film um, itself does not do that. It seems like it's a very sort of Japanese idea in that, I'm going to take this out of context because I haven't seen the movie, but it's like, don't be a wolf when don't you're a lamb. Don't try to be a wolf when you're a lamb. It's a very sort of Japanese moral there, it seems. Yeah. While an American movie would be like, go ahead and be a wolf, you can be whatever you want. It'll turn out for the better no matter what. Of course, when um, you start extending that to, you know, you're just a woman, then the Japanese society <laughs> gets exposed. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but thinking of movies like The Fox and the Hound and stuff like that, yeah, you do often have that kind of, oh, it's cool to be whatever, or... The message that they gave, and you saw this in The Lion King, as well as in Ringing Bell, they talk about the circle of life and mm -hmm. such that... It's not really that bad a thing to be eaten by the wolves because it's to help something survive and then the wolf will die and eventually become food for something else. And like Gerald said, a very Eastern sort of outlook. Mm -hmm. If any of you guys saw this when you were growing up, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about it. Send us emails about it. Yeah. Because I did not find out about this film until the late 90s. It's just one of those things like Neil Nadelman or whoever would bring up, you know, it's a fucked up movie, Ringing Bell, Scarred for Life, or whatever. <laughs> Neil and Dave Merrill and all those guys, it'd be one of those things people would trade and nobody mm -hmm. would have, and I knew the name and I couldn't find anyone who'd right. actually had a good copy of it and would make a copy. Yeah, or if they had it, you didn't have anything you could trade for it or Right, whatever. so thank God for the internet and BitTorrent and stuff like that. Yeah. All those mm -hmm. days are behind us, so... I'm not going to hoard this thing. If I don't see a decent enough thing on YouTube, I'll put it up. Great. The world I live in is a hell where death is always close by. You need stamina, determination, and the will to survive. I don't care how much it takes. This is what I want to do. I know I can. You'll see. I'll become stronger than a wolf. Someday I'll defeat even you. We'll see. For those of you out there who were actually watching anime before the advent of DVDs, some of you may have been around long enough in the mid-90s for when, about three or four years, the English-language anime Laserdisc market actually existed. And it had its best years, too, meaning that 20 people bought anime Laserdiscs. I mention this because it was around this time that the world's largest producer of Laserdisc players, Pioneer, entered the anime production market. Okay, maybe they produced something here and there before 1992, but it wasn't a lot. In general, Pioneer basically entered the market around 1992, and they entered it in a pretty big way. They also entered the American market in a pretty big way, and they pushed this Laserdisc format really, really heavily, while their VHS releases were kind of secondary. While they were entering the market at this time, they released a number of these shows of varying quality, such shows as Moldiver, Tenchi Muyo, Phantom Quest Core, and the show that I'm going to be talking about, Kishin Core, or as it's released now on modern DVDs, Alien Defender Geo Armor Kishin Core. Which is so much easier to remember. Exactly, isn't it? This is a title that I became somewhat familiar with because of all of the advertisements that were on Pioneer Laserdiscs around the mid-90s. It had a 
basic premise of a giant robot show set in World War II with aliens. How cool is that? Plus it had this sort of retro art style and the design of the mecha was really neat. Kind of the giant robo sort of anime, but it was never something I ever watched until fairly recently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can find it. Yeah. It was back in the days when tapes were still $30 for Mm -hmm. like an episode or two episodes or whatever. How many episodes was Kishinkor? Seven episodes. Seven episodes. It was probably three tapes or something like that. Four tapes. Four tapes. So So that's a lot of money to talk about for something that you've just kind of seen as a trailer. Mm -hmm. I was kind of in a lucky scenario because I could rent tapes. But Kishinkor was just one of those things where it seems interesting, but hmm. And Kishinkor also was like a lot of pioneer things at the time. It was actually easier to find the Laserdiscs than it was the VHS, at least in many of the situations that I came across. The show itself is about a young boy named Takamura Taishi. He is the son of a scientist, and his father has discovered some very interesting secrets about these aliens that seem to be constantly attacking Earth. His father's discovered some really amazing technology that has enabled them to create these gigantic robots. Remember, this is World War II, so of course, the Nazis also want this technology and end up killing Taishi's dad in the process, but Taishi manages to escape and is now an orphan, living with a bunch of orphans. The Nazis and the Kanto army want this technology so badly that they end up raiding Taishi's apartment that he shares with about a dozen other war orphans, and the Nazis end up stealing the means of developing their own technology. Eventually, Taishi is recruited by the Kishin Corps, who is basically an independent group who are on the sides of the Allies. They've kind of set it as their job to defend against the Nazis and the Kanto army. They've got this giant robot technology, and they've kind of perfected it in a way. That's enough to get started, but be careful. Did what I describe sound like an interesting show? Yeah, even though anime kind of has a somewhat shady track record when it comes to its revisionist World War II (laughs) things, probably by virtue of the fact that Japan's the one making it. Yeah. Also, steampunk is a really interesting concept to me that I am intrigued by, but it doesn't seem to be handled well. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the Sakura Tyson anime. I think I might like the games from a gameplay perspective more, but ADV's never released them here, even though they keep threatening to. It's the mixture of old and new. I think that's what is so appealing to the concept that you just described. I was in the same boat. I was thinking about this before I saw this show. I really hadn't read any reviews about it, and I only knew the basic concept, and the concept was just so neat to me. World War II, giant robots powered by steam, alien technology, and giant fans! There's nothing about this that should be bad. Right, it seems very much sort of, not quite pulp adventure, but Mm -hmm. in a similar sort of, not high adventure, but sort of... Kind of escapist adventure. Anyway, what could be wrong with this? I found out that a hell of a lot can be wrong. Daryl talked about this, and I'm actually going to elaborate on this point, if I can jump back a couple of minutes. When I talk about Pioneer in their early days, one of the things that they seemed to be doing at the time was they were taking these more popular shows that were around at the time and these concepts and basically ripping them off. For example, Phantom Quest Core is an early show that they put out, and that is a total, absolute, blatant ripoff of another show called Ghost Sweeper Mikami. Was Ghost Sweeper Mikami the original one? Ghost Sweeper Mikami was the original. We only know Ghost Sweeper Mikami over here 
by the manga, manga video. video release, which you should never watch that movie without having watched the TV series, and the TV series has never been released over here. <laughs> yeah. Tenshi Muyo is a general sort of ripoff of Yuru Sayatsura, even though it is credited as starting the harem boom. I really would credit it as well. It's admittedly a better show. At least until it exploded. And Kishinkor... Wait, wait, it's a better show than Ursa Yatsura? No, it's a better show than a lot of the other rip-off shows that they were doing. I see. Kishinkor, like Daryl was saying, is heavily, heavily influenced by Giant Robo. It's so heavily influenced how I saw it that it almost hurts. When I was watching the show, all I could think of was that some producer or someone somewhere sat down and watched Giant Robo and said, we need to do the same thing. To me, there just seemed to be an enormous number of similarities. I kind of wish more people would do that. I wouldn't mind if people were saying, we need to make more things like Giant Robo. Mm -hmm. I think anime could do worse. Well, it's like they were making a shell of Giant Robo, but they didn't really get what made Giant Robo good. Right, they just sort of took the surface Mm -hmm. elements as opposed to the actual brass tacks of it almost like people copying manga styles and exactly saying they're doing manga when you take the similarities giant robo had this sweeping orchestral score kishinkor has this orchestral score and it's got this epic storyline and there's a lot of characters it's just got a general feeling that's extremely similar to giant robo but it just can't pull it off this might be purely a coincidence because this series is actually based off of a series of novels by a man named masaki yamada who has actually been published in America. Masaki Yamada actually wrote the Ghost in the Shell Innocence novel called After the Long Goodbye. So I don't know about the Kishinkor novels. I couldn't find out when they were published. I don't really think that that matters a whole lot because I think that the creators of the show had Giant Robo in mind when they were making it. Now, just because they wanted to be like another show doesn't mean it's a bad show. Right. The problem with Kishinkor is that It's just not a good show. This show has just got some really incompetent direction, in my opinion. And when I mean incompetent, I really mean it. This is a show that, amazingly enough for me, manages to make every single action sequence in it completely uninteresting and just Mm. boring on every level. I actually went back and rewatched a whole bunch of these action scenes to see if I could pinpoint why these scenes were just so boring. There's this one scene. It takes place on a train, and this train is rapidly heading towards another train. This other train is an enemy train, while at the same time, running parallel to the Kishinkor train, is another train that's piloted by the Axis. Sort of like the opening scene in Giant Robo, where there's the one train, and then there's the other train coming by... Exactly. So much so. And this one train piloted by the Kishinkor must defend themselves from the enemy train while this other train is running towards them. Doesn't that scene sound exciting to you? Doesn't it seem like that would just be a really awesome scene to watch? But the direction of this scene is just so unexciting and so bland and boring and it's just got lousy editing and the actors don't sound excited. Everything else. I don't really know if it's any one single element that's making this bad. It might be a combination of things. Was that the dub or the sub where they sounded really bored? I'm assuming the subtitled one, because the dub, they probably always sounded really bored back then. The sub, which is amazing. This is why you need to listen to podcasts like the Ninja Consultants, because those guys have got degrees in film, and they could probably watch this and pinpoint exactly what it is that makes this so bad. Yeah, I was about to say, it's been a while since I've seen this. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember these scenes in enough detail 
to really say what it is, but I also remember just being really bored yeah. by the action scenes, and I can't remember enough specifically. Do you think it's the camera shots that are used? I think it's a combination of the camera shots, the music not accompanying the scene correctly, and the logical progression from one scene to the next. Let me give you an example. There's a scene in this that's kind of towards the end of the show where Taishi, the main young boy, is having sort of a fist fight with a very important character in the show. And mm -hmm. Taishi jumps at this guy, and it's this big kind of scene, because fist fights don't happen much in the show. This guy takes off his cape and throws it at Taishi. Taishi's on the ground now, and then the very next scene right after this is the bad guy walking slowly towards this giant mech. And Taishi is just standing there looking at him, and all I want to say is, weren't you in a fist fight just a second ago? Shouldn't you be chasing after that guy? Shouldn't, shouldn't something be happening here? This doesn't make any sense. And this is what I was doing this entire show, is that things were not making sense. Like there's, pieces got chopped out. I don't know. And there's also a problem in that the show has got these aliens in it. And there is so little done with them yeah. that I really question why these aliens are even in the show. These aliens have got these really cool designs. The robots in general are pretty cool designs. Yes, yes, they are. And the aliens, the closest parallel I could draw is to the aliens in a show called Oban Star Racers, which is on America on Toon Disney. And I think that the show's on all over the world. That show's got some really neat designs for their aliens. Mm -hmm. The aliens have got no faces and they're kind of split down the center. And they're bird-like. They even have this eagle scream when they're attacking. But there's just no purpose to them in the show. It feels like the author for this was sitting down and he said, I want to make a show that's set in World War II that's got giant robots, but I have to justify why these giant robots are there, so I'm going to add aliens to them so aliens can provide the technology to create the robots. You know what? You don't have to justify giant robots to me, okay? Giant robots can just be there, and I don't question that. But it seems like he just had to do this. That seems like sort of a thing you'd see in American movies. I remember there yeah. were people who were complaining about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Why can they just fly around like that? Mm. But Spider-Man's A-OK -okay because they gave an explanation. Oh, he got bitten by a spider that was hit by right. radioactivity. Right. That's just yeah. a silly. You can just say, oh, they can do that. Yeah. The Maybe aliens. that's the difference between Western and Eastern storytelling. And the aliens themselves yeah. are so lousy and weak. Mm. There's this one yeah. scene in it where one of these aliens is attacking one of Taishi's friends. And Taishi has got no guns on him or anything, and he's just got a little knife. He throws this knife at the alien, touches the alien, the alien explodes. These are the guys that are going to take over the world? These are the mm. guys that we are up against? They can just be stabbed by a little knife and they explode? You can spill you water on them and they die. Okay, you had said that this was based off of novels? Yes, right. Do you think it's an issue of a lot of stuff from the books got left out? Oh, so boy. it just got condensed badly, so what was left didn't really make any sense? I so wish I could answer that, because mm. I would love to know if this is just something that started out with really good novels, and it's just a bad You haven't direction. found any information on the novels? I can't find anything mm. on the novels. This show okay. was not popular in America, it wasn't popular in Japan, it didn't right. deserve to be popular. I wish I could find out, because I haven't read the other novel that Masaki Yamada did, the American one. I'm going to guess that this is an issue with the production of the anime, because this mm -hmm. show had two directors, and it's kind of rare for anime to have more than one. To give you an idea, 
Odin had, what, four directors, and that was a mess. It's yeah, rare. Well, usually actually... for TV series, they'll have like, an overall series director, and then they'll have episode directors, but yeah, I don't know if they s- do that for OAVs, really. Seven-episode OAV. Mm. So, I don't know. Really, when it comes down to it, I hate the show so much because it commits <laughs> the worst crime that anime can commit, in failed my opinion. Failed potential. That's it, is failed yeah. potential. You, like you noir. Me, oh, wait, we got a voicemail saying that noir had good choreography, though, in uh, defense of it. But we I mean, did? Oh. Yeah, yeah, uh. the dude called back and said, oh, no, noir's choreography was consistently great. It was consistently something, all right. But, yeah. <laughs> When you come to me with a show that looks like crap, and it turns out to be crap, that's not going to be a big surprise. Right. Nothing lost. It's nothing lost. But when a show comes with a really neat concept, and you just fail on every level, it's being dropped from such a higher place that it's just... I wonder how the show got finished. The show took a long time to make, Mm. and it was just crappy on every level, and I'm annoyed with myself because I don't have the education to know exactly what it is that I think is shitty. Maybe it's something that it's a little bit of everything, but I think it's those things I was talking about. When you fail on your potential, that's so much worse than if you're a bad show to begin with and you end up being crap. I actually bought this at Otacon this year. Buy Right DVD has a booth at Otacon usually every year, and they just have boxes of these DVDs Mm -hmm. for $5, and these criminally cheap. So I paid $5 for this. So then the question is, well, is the show worth $5? That doesn't matter. Is the show worth four and a half hours of your life? <laughs> it's not. It's not worth four and a half hours of your life. I really haven't seen too many shows where the voice actors in the Japanese version just didn't sound interested. Just so many things that went wrong with it on so many levels. Again, like I said, all I found out about the show was its concept, and I bought it based upon that. It just messed me around, and I just was disappointed on every level. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I don't remember a whole lot of detail. But I also just remember it not being very good. Being, yeah. like you said, bored during the action scenes. And it just wasn't really very interesting. And the show does such a bad job with just conveying some basic components of its storyline. Mm. Like, a lot of the things that I said about the aliens, there may very well be some reason why these aliens are there beyond providing technology, but I couldn't figure it out, mm. because this show just does not do that. This show has got a spectacular cast. Hiromi Tsuru is in this. Mm. Norio Wakamoto. Was she one of the Nazis? She actually plays two characters. Eva. Were they both Nazis? No. Man? Eva Maria... Brown. So I guess Norio Wakamoto wasn't a bad show, huh? Oh, Norio Wakamoto was in Dog Soldier. Oh, wait, that's right. Damn. <laughs> yeah. I you forgot about that. possibly forget about Phantom, <laughs> that up-and-coming death merchant. <laughs> yeah, but I think I've only ever seen like, Dog Soldier dubbed. Like my mother. <laughs> so I forgot that Norio Wakamoto was in it. What's his name who played Vampire Hunter D, whose name escapes me for no good reason? Kaneda Shiazawa. Kaneda Shiazawa's in this as well. It had a stellar cast, and of Mm. course, you never should... They just all sounded bored, huh? They were bored! It's so weird! They just... Maybe they just knew it was a bad show, and so... I think they were just like, I'll just come in, read this, get my paycheck, and go. I'll give it some credit that the voice actors for Gundo Musashi actually sounded into the show. 
even though the show is absolutely terrible. This show, just no one sounded like they wanted to be there. Mm. And then they had this sort of character design issue. The character designs were these kind of retro designs, which, again, seems neat. Mm-hmm. Would seem like it's appropriate for a show that's set in the 1940s. But the characters have got the worst hair I've ever seen in any anime character. There's one girl in here. There is more hair on this girl than there is girl. And there's no, like... <laughs> she's Gossamer. <laughs> oh, God. No, I'm sorry. I was just thinking of Starfire from the Teen Titans. Yeah. God. The original comic Yeah, yeah, the actual comic book one. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's out of hand. This show has got some really awesome designs. Mm. I would probably be the first to go and pick up some Kishinkor model kits. Because this would make some really kick-ass models. Mm-hmm. But beyond that... Do they exist? Or is no, it like they don't. Full Metal Panic or... No plastic model kits for you. I don't believe that any model kits for Kishin Core exist. And that's unfortunate, because that's the only redeeming quality in this whole show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I would actually like people who have seen the show to write in, and I'm sure they will. I did a little bit of research, and it seemed like this was a relatively liked show from some of the reviews that I've seen online. Get emails from angry Kishinkor fans. Oh, I'm sure they're they got Odin fans who are like really <laughs> diehard <laughs> yep. founders of the CFO. Then yeah, I guess there probably are fans of this. Four and a half hours of your life, you can be watching a lot better stuff than this. Aaron Noah, I know that you're in Japan right now, but watch the show and tell me what is wrong with the show. I'm sure you guys will see it more than I will. Alright, you guys may remember that just a couple episodes ago, in show number 40, I talked about the first part of a very long-running and sort of strange shonen fighting series called JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I'm coming back this episode to talk about part two. For the basic description of JoJo's overall and information about who the mangaka is, all of that, you can check the first segment back in episode number 40. Part 2 of JoJo's is called Sento Chioryu, or Battle Tendency. The first series, you may remember, happened in Victorian England. Well, Part 2 takes place in the 1930s and is about the grandson of the hero from the first JoJo storyline. His name is Joseph Joestar, and he's in New York with his grandmother, Arena, who you may also remember from JoJo's Part 1. And Joseph has inherited his grandfather's ability to use the Hamon or Ripple technique. I talked about the plot of the first part of JoJo's, and I mentioned the fact that JoJo's plot lines tend to be kind of ridiculous. Well, part two, of course, is more ridiculous, and you'll, you'll see the escalation that starts to happen here. Part two begins with another familiar face from the first part of JoJo's Phantom Blood, Robert E.O. Speedwagon, who in the 50 years between the first series and this one, went to Texas and has become just incredibly wealthy oil baron. He's kind of become like this Rockefeller type figure that he's not only very wealthy, but he has this foundation that's been formed, the Speedwagon Foundation, and they do all kinds of research 
research and technological work. And one of the things that they do is to further research the stone mask, also from part one. And in the course of trying to find out about the stone mask, Speedwagon goes to Mexico to examine some Aztec temples that show some evidence of having some connection to the stone mask. Well, something pretty bad happens there involving another familiar face from part one, Straits. And he's anything but. Basically, Straits is getting a little old now. Everybody who uses the Hamon technique ages more slowly than usual, but even 50 years is pushing it a little since he was already, we don't even know how old, during part one, and he's starting to show his age, and now that he is, he's starting to get a little freaked out about it, and he decides that he doesn't really want to get old and feeble and die. He remembers that, hey, Dio took that stone mask and became a vampire and was gorgeous and would have been young and powerful forever. Maybe he can do the same thing, and he's smarter than Dio, right? So he'll succeed or Dio failed. Some pretty bad stuff goes down, and it's stated that Speedwagon is dead. Joseph Joestar, who's bumming around New York, hears about this and, of course, isn't very happy about it. Not long after that, Joseph himself has a confrontation with Straits, who, after a fairly difficult fight, manages to dispatch. And this is where the real storyline begins, because it turns out that the deal with the stone mask is a little more complicated than anybody thought. Pretty soon, they discover that, in addition to the vampires that are created by the stone mask, there are these strange beings that are connected to them. They're not really vampires. They're some alternate life form, apparently. They seem like humans, but slightly different, and they seem to be quite powerful. The main plotline revolves around these powerful creatures. There's four of them. Santana, Wham, ACDC, and Cars. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. After having slept for some time, they wake up and they decide to try to become even more powerful by using the stone masks in conjunction with a certain red stone. And so Joseph gets dragged into all of this when he goes to Mexico in order to see what's going on with Speedwagon. Eventually, the storyline will carry Joseph and his eventual companions through several different countries. Joseph will be assisted in his battle by a few companions, like his friend and partner in total lameness, Caesar Zappelli. He is the grandson of Will A. Zappelli. Joseph is also trained by a mysterious, beautiful, and talented woman named Lisa Lisa, who was the one who taught Caesar in the art of Hamon, and is going to whip Joseph into shape. There's also this guy named Stroheim, who's a Nazi. Mexican Nazis? Well, no, no. I mean, he's a German Nazi, but he was sent to Mexico. Because, see, if you've learned anything from Hollywood and anime, it is that Nazis, of course, were obsessed with all things occult. (laughs) And so, of course, with these stone masks and these ancient, mysterious humanoid creatures of incredible power... The Nazis want to research this and figure out what's going on, and if they can't actually control these beings, then perhaps they can study them and figure out some way to gain their power for themselves. The Nazis are just the perfect villains for any story, because you can depict them as badly as you want. And no one will complain, because they're Nazis. 
What's kind of strange is that the Nazis aren't really villains in this part of JoJo's. It's not like they portray the Nazis as really cool guys who had good ideas, but you only meet a few particular Nazis, and the ones that you do are actually not really fighting precisely against our heroes, at least not all the time. But yeah, Stroheim is a Nazi and who eventually becomes a cyborg Nazi. He'll look really familiar to anybody who ever plays Street Fighter, because he looks very similar to Guile. I've heard that Guile's character design was influenced by Stroheim, but I don't actually know if that's true or not. I don't have, like, an interview quote that I can post to back that up. I wouldn't doubt it, though, because the guys at Capcom are pretty big JoJo's fanboys. So, super powerful beings, and more stone masks, and red stones, and more martial arts craziness. This part is still very influenced by Fist of the North Star, and it's still martial arts-based. But as far as the jump between part one and part two, there's definitely way more fighting in part two. Yeah, and I was actually about to talk about the differences. I mentioned that Araki works on JoJo's for quite a long time, and JoJo's is in fact still going as Steel Ball Run. Like any mangaka who's working for quite a long time, and like any series that continues on for a long time, there's a lot of progress in the artwork, in the writing, in the particular style of that series. There is really a lot of progress, and the difference between part two and part one is really noticeable. You can definitely see the progression that's starting to happen. Part one, I talked about the artwork in the sense that it was very inspired by Fist of the North Star, and so the guys were really huge, but the artwork wasn't very good, and so the proportions were really off. The guys looked like they just had barrels under their clothing. In part two, the artwork has gotten much better. The guys are still big, but the proportions aren't as weird. Yeah. It's not like the super big barrel torso with the tiny head anymore. It's much more evenly proportioned. Yeah, I noticed that too. Adaki likes to do a lot of detail in his artwork, and I seem to notice a bit of a jump in detail between part one and two. Not a huge amount, but the faces a lot of times seem more detailed. Another thing that is progressing is in terms of the writing. In terms of his endorsements for just crazy violence. (laughs) This is also getting to be more and more aligned with other parts of JoJo's. I think I mentioned that I had come into JoJo's from later parts, and so when I went back and read the earlier parts, it was kind of weird because they were pretty different. And part one had a lot of things that were very different from a lot of the later parts. But part two is really where I can definitely see the series becoming what I'm familiar with. One of my favorite things about JoJo's is the fact that the characters are mostly kind of dorks. They're definitely badasses. Yeah, but it's stupid in a dorky, kind of ridiculous way, as opposed to your typical kind of shonen stupid hero. In part one, I think partly because it was Victorian England, Jonathan kind of had some of that, where he was kind of a dumb punk as a kid and would be a little silly, but it's with Joseph that you really, really see this, because Joseph is completely ridiculous. 
I'm trying to think of how to describe this, but at the very beginning, during the fight with Straits, where something happens and he pointing out something about Straits' legs. I believe he was injured and it, he's uh, kind of like reforming and he's a little unsteady because his legs are badly injured, as I believe what was going on. But anyway, Joseph is like, I have a plan and my plan involves using our legs too. And he's like, what's the plan, Joseph? And Joseph is like, we run away. And he takes off. <laughs> he has a really good way of running. He totally does. And he and Caesar get into these really stupid, lame fights, but they manage to be totally hilarious, I think, rather than annoying. How does one get into a fight in the middle of the Colosseum with vampire horses? Yeah, really. I think it's also ridiculous in that, on the one hand, it's manly, tough, brutal martial arts, and people are bleeding and getting limbs hacked off, and it's... Babies' faces are being eaten. Yeah, it's pretty brutal, but... Then on the other hand, I sit there and I realize Joseph fights by throwing things at people and making things explode, and Caesar fights with soap. That's it. Period. Yeah. Yeah, it's badass, but at the same time, it never really takes itself all that seriously. Another thing that is a pretty big part of JoJo's, it's not present in every single part, but it's fairly important, is that the mangaka Araki really likes to travel. He goes to all different countries all over the world. So one of the things that you see a lot in different parts of JoJo's is traveling. And so you'll get to see all these different locations, and Araki likes to draw really detailed backgrounds and architecture and stuff, so you really do get a pretty good sense of where they're at and that each place is different from every other place, and they'll like weird encounters sometimes with the local people and talk about cultural things and whatnot, and Araki gets to geek out a little bit in writing that stuff. But you didn't really get that in part one, because part one pretty much all took place in England. There was mention of Central America and the Aztecs because of the stone mask, but they never really went outside of England. In part two, however, you get a much wider range of locations. Stuff happens in New York, stuff happens in Mexico, stuff happens in Italy. They kind of travel all over the place. I don't know where he got the time to travel like that as a manga artist. Yeah, I don't all know. The money that manga artists make, they just get to travel the world. Well, he, he probably gets to say, well, it's research, it's location scouting. Worked for making G Gundam. Hey, I need a trip to Hong Kong for research. Yeah, let's do that. It's more like, yeah. where do they get the time? Right. I mean, he produces this on a weekly basis, doesn't he? Yeah. I guess maybe he can do the work in his hotel while he's traveling or something. I think like maybe it's, <laughs> I think it's what we all suspect, and that these manga artists don't do any work. They get a crew of people to do all Just the work the for them. The assistants do it all. Yeah, like that I don't one know. girl that's got sixty people working for her to produce her manga. Mm. Well, maybe Anaki did some of the traveling between doing Bow and this. He had to travel underneath the ocean for Bow. Thank you. <laughs> make sure he could depict that ending correctly. Right. Right. Another thing is that the first series, because it was kind of in Victorian England, there wasn't really very much in the way of female characters. Arena was sort of peripheral, and she didn't really get to do a whole lot. But starting in part two with Lisa Lisa, we start to get better female characters, and I think JoJo's is a pretty good series for female characters. There's a nice range, I think, of them, and many of them throughout the course of the different JoJo segments will get to be pretty awesome. 
The homoeroticism quotient is greatly increased from part one into part two. Part one was fairly restrained, but at part two, I guess Araki finally decided... Those crazy Mexicans, they'll do anything. Yeah, he's like, I need more naked man flesh. So I'm going to draw a lot of really buff Aztec gods in tiny loincloths posing. And the clothes get a little more ridiculous for the other characters, too, as things get modernized. It's nowhere near the heights of fashion nonsense that Araki reaches later, but it's a start, and I'll definitely post some examples. Of course, as you can tell, the music stuff is not changed. In fact, it's probably even worse. I mean, Santana, Wham, ACDC, and Cars. <laughs> hey, I'll have you know, tons of people name their kids ACDC <laughs> every year, especially in Mexico. Clearly, I mean, the Aztec Empire, ACDC was such a common name. And Wham, too. Wham was a very respectable name. Very respectable. Yes. This part is much more silly than part one was. I think that's a good thing. Other people might disagree, I don't know. Aztec gods, cyber-Nazis... Thinks that that's about cover, is it? Chariot races with vampire horses. Poison rings. (laughs) (sighs) The poison ring. (laughs) Yeah, post pictures of the poison ring incident. The poison wedding ring, yeah. Yeah, remember that. It was specifically said wedding ring. It's it's not gay at all, though. It's a deadly martial art. Almost as deadly as the tiny net. That's a death sentence. It's a net, and it's tiny. Yes. The tiny net is is surely something to be feared. The ending of part two basically leads directly into the beginning of the next part, and so I guess that we'll leave that here until Daryl talks about part three. Okay, and that's another episode of Anime World Order. You can contact us at animeworldorder at gmail.com. Call our number at 206-666-4296. Or send us an audio like we said. We always like to hear from you people. We don't mind you guys sending audios. But if you can record it to MP3 and send it to us in an attachment in an email, we prefer that. Yeah, I think maybe 9 out of 10 times it forgets to actually email us to let us know that somebody has, in fact, sent us voicemail through that thing. Yeah, so we basically have to chalk it up to if we just happen to check the account. That's why sometimes we don't get to the audios very quickly. Well, what are we going to be doing next week? I'm not going to guarantee it's next week, but the next time we have a show out, it's going to be an episode where we just answer emails because, like I said earlier in the show, we've got about 125 emails that are not yet responded to or answered, so we're going to try and cut down on that, and we promise that we will answer more emails than we managed to answer when we had Dave Merrill on because we'll just be answering these emails ourselves and not be totally starstruck by Dave's incredible stories. All right, that's it. Man, we really got to work on making these episodes shorter again. Or at least under two hours. (laughs) 